Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. Liverpool lose it again, City go seven clear at the top, Chelsea enter the top four and the Moisire is performing miracles at West Ham. I'm Dan Burke, this is the Premier League Weekend Review Podcast and I'm joined for this one by Matt Froelich hey. and Joel Sanderson-Murray. Hello. So Joel, I'd imagine you spent the weekend desperately hoping the rumours about Liverpool's manager quitting weren't true, whereas Matt, you probably spent the weekend desperately hoping you'd hear some rumours about Tottenham's manager quitting. Have I got that about right? Potentially. <laughs> <laughs> Well, more on that later on. We'll begin at the King Power Stadium today, where everything was going swimmingly for Liverpool on Saturday until it wasn't. Uh, My first question on this is about the fact Liverpool have scored just one Premier League goal in the first half of their eight matches in 2021, and even that came in first half stoppage time against Tottenham. Uh, Joel, how has a team who were once such fast starters become so ponderous? Well, I I think this idea that Liverpool have been fast starters is, is sort of... I, I, I think it's it's something from a sort of not necessarily a bygone era, but it, it's Jurgen Klopp's teams now, or this Liverpool team, have become a team that sort of control possession and, and control games and wear teams down. Whereas obviously what you're referring to and what everyone's idea of Liverpool that they're referring to comes from sort of the first couple of years of Klopp, where Liverpool could blow teams away in the first twenty minutes and and, and did so frequently. But over, over time, they sort of become a bit more a team that sort of plays their way into the games and, and tries to break teams down and, and wear it down. So I, I, I don't think this is, taking the context of the situation that we're in at the moment, I, I don't think they, they necessarily become ponderous. It's just that they've, they've not been fast starters for, for a little while or they, they don't do it as frequently as they used to do anyway. Um, but I think at, at, you know, at the moment... It's it, it just sort of looks bad because of the, the context they're in when they're losing games, and obviously that's that's something that another thing that people complain at Liverpool and saying they're not doing, which I guess they're not. But I think on on Saturday they played really well, really well for mm-hmm. for seventy minutes, and and I, I you know they did they did press high and and they did you know make sure Leicester couldn't get out of their own area and. And I think why this result hurts more than maybe the Man City results and the, and the Brighton result, um, the recent losses, is because Liverpool actually did play well in this game and probably deserved to get something from it. Um, and then the issue is the capitulated in, in eight minutes and conceded mm. three goals, and you can't do that, can you? No, no. Well, yeah, like they did, they did take the lead, as you said, with a, a lovely goal in the second half and looked to be heading towards a win until the game turned on Leicester getting a, a, a rather controversial equaliser. What were your thoughts on that one, Matt? Um, oh, this is a super tough one. I always, if I pick a side, it turns out that I don't actually know the rules because they seem to change so frequently. <laughs> Every time I think I know the rules, and I'm like, yeah, you know, who was it? Was it Amati? Yeah, Daniel yeah. Amati. Yeah, it was Amati. So I, I think, I, oh, you know what? He, you could tell by his body language, he knows he's in a bit of a, a bit of a mess. Like he's kind of, kind of refrained from touching the ball, and let it go all the way through, and then you sort of come across the rule that is he interfering? Is he in the line of sight? I mean, I want to say it's as simple as he didn't touch the ball. Um, Alisson didn't make the save, so it's a goal, but I think it obviously is a little bit more complex than that. What about you, Joel? Were you fuming about it? I I was at first, when I first went in and and they showed the first replay, but I've seen subsequent replays and images since, and and, and the thing is, I, I you see one image and it does look like he, he is offside and 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 by and by 
you know, quite a distance as well um, in the terms of England. And you've seen another image and Firmino's boot is playing his sleeve on. And it's, it's just a ridic- another one of those ridiculous ones. And and, and I, I still, you know, three, four days later, can't come to the conclusion of whether it was offside or not. And, and, and the thing is, we've, we've, you know, we've bodied these sort of tight ones or tight decisions all year, haven't we? Where we said we need to give them onside and give the benefit of the doubt to the attacker. And I guess maybe that's what, they were doing on Saturday, and I, I still can't come to conclusion three days later. Then it's difficult for the referees and the VARs to come to a conclusion on on the day, and and whether they should side with being cautious or side with the attacker, you know, that's up for debate as well. So mm. I, it's, it's a difficult one, and I think it's I've, a tough one to be honest. I've just realised you're talking about the offside. I'm talking about whether he touched it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm sitting there thinking. I've got the wrong end of the stick. No. Oh, in terms of offside, yeah, it's it's very difficult because you're just applying lines where lines are almost impossible to be drawn. Mm. Well, I mean, I get a lot less annoyed by these decisions than I did earlier in the season, but I find myself watching lots of games where you see a goal go in and think, well, that's clearly offside. And yeah. then somehow they decide that it's actually onside <laughs> or vice versa. I, I think I preferred it before they, they started drawing these lines and they just kind of went off what the linesman saw in real time. In a bizarre kind of way, there was more honesty to that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and you're also putting actual emphasis on the person who's employed to make those decisions to yeah. do that job. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly, and the linesmen now, they they can get away with not really making a decision. And exactly. Because they know the VAR can back them up, and, and the thing is they delay their flags now, don't they, a lot, which mm. I know they're told to do. But it, it just it just makes it a little bit more confusing and, and leaves so much doubt there, and I just don't think this is the way it should be. It doesn't need to be like this either. Mm. I saw I saw someone on Twitter before, before saying like it's simple they just need to have two hundred cameras on the touchline and they'll be able to <laughs> and it's like it's just a, it's just such a mess at this point isn't it uh, but anyway just just three minutes after that equaliser Leicester went in front thanks to another Allison meltdown or, or was it uh, who do you blame more for that one Joel do you blame Allison or, or for rushing out of his goal or, or Ozan Kabak for kind of getting in his way I always I always hate sort of um, putting like assign a scapegoat or try and blame a player but I, I you know when it comes to conceding goals but I, in this instance there obviously is someone to blame and an individual to blame and I, I would say so that the blame should and fault should lie with the goalkeeper because I, I think if K- the ball's Kabak's on the turn and he is in a difficult position but he looks like if Allison's not there Kabak will deal with it he'll 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 just clear out for a throw and that's absolutely fine um and Allison and the ball is quite far out. Vardy has, once Vardy receives the ball and gets onto the mistake, he actually acts to run a little bit to mm. put the ball in there. So there's an argument there that Alisson doesn't need to be there in the first place. On the other hand, Alisson is coming onto it in a, in a better angle and in a in a better you know, shape, and he can see more of the you know of the area ahead of him that come back on because Kabak's obviously turned his back to the play. But uh, you know. He's either not shouted loud enough, or he's not shouted at all, and that's where I think the you know that's where it comes into Allison's uh, you know issue, and maybe the fault should lie with him. And it's, it's but Ian Klopp says afterwards that you know they've not had many training sessions together, which which they haven't. Kabak's only trained for a week with Liverpool, and he said that Kabak's just not learned how to play with this goalkeeper, and and you know if. If maybe that was Gomez, Matip, Fabinho, Van Dijk, they would know Alisson's going to come for mm. that kind of ball and deal with it. Uh, so it's, it's a difficult one, and I, I think maybe it does come down to just you know, it, you know, minutes on the training pitch. But I think on this one, you know, Alisson should maybe clean both of them out, and we and we deal with another injured centre half and, and just <laughs> cut for it. <laughs> 
Well, you were saying last week, weren't you, about how uh, part of Liverpool's problem is that they left those transfers too late in the window and now they've sort of had to throw these players in at, uh, in difficult games, you know, Leicester being it, it, not a far from ideal debut for Quebec. Do, do you think he did okay apart from that incident? I think he was solid enough. I mean, you can clearly see he was nervous and, um, you know, you're making the Premier League debut against Jamie Vardy. It's never going to be a bag of fun, is it? And well, I think he ha- handles himself well. There's, there's one little slip up in the first half, but I think he was okay up until then, and I think after then it just completely shot them because you know Leicester scored a third goal and, and Harvey Barnes sort of runs off him, but in, in a way that Quebec looks like he's running with lead in his boots, and it's just it, it just looked like a state that Quebec didn't want to get involved with another one on one and just let Barnes run through, score the third goal, and, and I, I just hope that that situation hasn't completely shot him because he's, he's going to be needed. He's going to have to play. He's probably going to start against Leipzig on Tuesday night. He's probably going to play in the Minnesota Derby. He's, you know, it's, it's an absolute baptism of fire, as they would say, but he's going to have to sort of try and get used to it and shake that off as quickly as possible. Mm. Are you uh, are you concerned about Thiago at all yet? I mean, he's not playing well at the moment. I saw him described as Liverpool's Juan Sebastian Veron over the weekend, which is... <laughs> <laughs> that was brutal. Yeah, yeah that's brutal. Um, I think it's a fair question to ask. And I, um, you know, I've seen a, you know, a few Liverpool fans on Twitter sort of saying, you know, pondering what he's adding to the team. And again, I understand that. And I completely think that's fair because right now he's come in and, and Liverpool are losing games, and, and they weren't losing games last season. But mm. I think that there are a few caveats to this. Um, one, I think he, he was obviously bought in with the idea that Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez weren't going to be out injured for the rest of the season, and Thiago could probably play in the midfield with Fabinho and Henderson alongside him, which would, you know, Fabinho and Henderson would do their jobs, and that, that would easily allow for Thiago to do his job. Now, Liverpool are in the situation they're in because of the injuries, and and every plan they had for the season ahead had just completely gone to shit yeah. because and, and the plan they had for Thiago is probably you know gone as well. Like I don't think Thiago would be playing this further forward. He probably would have been bought to play alongside Fabinho. You know, maybe it's a double pivot kind of thing, and I, it, it's just difficult. And, and, and Thiago's you know and Liverpool are just going from one week to the next, hoping to to get a result out of things, and it's, it's not happening. And you know, right now he doesn't look good, and he is making stupid tackles and stupid moments and. And uh, getting yellow cards and second minutes of games, which ain't which isn't good. But I think you go into next season and you've had a full summer, you know, well half a summer with him because of the Euros. But you've had more training time. You get players back. I think next season we'll, we'll be we'll be sitting here maybe three months into it, and we would have seen a lot more, you know, the good part of Thiago. But right now it's not working so well. Yeah, and he's had injury problems to deal with himself as well, hasn't he? Which hasn't really, uh, you know, helped matters. Um, I thought Leicester were actually quite poor for the majority of this game, or m- maybe it was Liverpool being being better than them. But I thought the scoreline really flattered them. Uh, at one nil, I was going to ask you if they should be worried about a repeat of last season when they slipped out the top four right at the end. They're in a strong position right now, Matt, but they do have to be careful, don't they? Yeah, I feel like last season will definitely be um, a kind of pointer for them in the dressing room to be like, we don't let that slip. But having said that. Uh, for last last season, I felt like after the break, it was, what was it, nine games, um, I think, when we, we returned to football. And it yeah. was kind of like yeah. a, a mini tournament in itself. It's kind of right. Nine games, Liverpool have won the title, City are going to finish second. Can we hold on to this top four spot? And they didn't. Whereas now it kind of feels like there's a flow to it and they're right in the thick of aiming for the top, um, to finish in the top four, rather than aiming to hold on to something. Because I feel like there's kind of two different mindsets to be um, 
to be sort of chiselled out from that. And I think they have to be careful, but if they were to look at the teams around them, and I mean, just for everybody, it seems, apart from City at the moment, the inconsistency <laughs> could, it could not only be, you know, bad for them, we know they can be inconsistent and they can fall off, but also it could work for them. Because, you know, I, I really honestly think that, and maybe it's my optimism as a Spurs fan, um, any team from sort of Tottenham upwards, all they have to do is put a consistent run together and they can make the top four. Well, look at Chelsea. So, they sacked their manager a few weeks ago and now they're, yeah, now they're fourth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What, what, what? I think they've had four wins and a draw, is it? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's it. All it is, one consistent bit of form and, and you're in with the shout. So I think... It's kind of Leicester in the same bucket as everyone else. They're not really trying to cling on to it like they were last year. Yeah. Are you uh, are you concerned about Liverpool's top four hopes yet, Joel? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and should be because you know, right now, you know, it's they've fallen off a cliff and you know, it, there's no, it doesn't look like they're, they're going to get out of it anytime soon out of this sort of malaise that they found themselves in. And, and you know, I guess what Matt just said there it should offer a, you know, a bit of hope because other teams aren't being consistent. And, and when you are stuck in your sort of your own team's bubble, you're worried about your own results. But you know, even Man United aren't in good form at the moment. They're dropping points here, you know, left, right, and centre. Spurs and Leicester. And, and, and I think Matt's right there. If any team can put three wins together, that whole the whole pitch looks completely different, yeah. doesn't it? And I don't think Liverpool will keep with that right now, but. You know, there's a Mayside dive next weekend, and that'll yeah, be yeah. That's place, a so. that's a guarantee. Three points, isn't it? Everton at <laughs> oh, home. God. That one yeah. could go wrong. I'm not sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> well, that result for Liverpool meant Manchester City could go 13 points clear of the defending champions by beating Tottenham on Saturday night, and they did exactly that. Uh, Matt, I was expecting a tough test from Spurs here, perhaps foolishly, uh, but they never laid a glove on City in the end. Were you surprised by that, or did the game go as you expected? Very foolishly, Dan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it went. Uh, time and time again, I'm sick of it. It went as expected. It went... I feel like when the fans expect it, for some reason, the players also get that vibe and they think, ah, well, no one else is expecting us to do anything, so we might as well not try either. <laughs> it, was just, it was just typical Tottenham away at a big... Uh, a fellow big six side in which... I can't remember what the count is now. I think it's something like seven wins in the Premier League away against the rest of the top six in 115 matches or something. Um, and it, it just, it just, it went to the book. This is the thing that's annoying me about Tottenham this season is there's no real surprises. You know, everything is very predictable, very boring. And just that is the quite possibly the, if we're talking about inconsistencies, that's quite possibly the most consistent result you're going to see. One team in form, one team not. Away from home, 3-0. Jobs are good and see you later. <laughs> uh, well, I get the sense from Twitter that there's a pretty big divide in the Spurs fan base at the moment with mm. some believing it's all Mourinho's fault and, and some believing it's down to the players. Who, whose side are you on of, of that debate? Um, the, there's also the board to be mentioned in that because <laughs> this, this, this rot has been going on since they decided to kind of not back Pochettino a few, a few years ago. And he was right in saying... There needs to be a lot of change. And we're now seeing that I think most Spurs fans would agree that there's four, no, five players who are uh, who are good enough to start for Tottenham and the other six have got to go. Um, but I'm, I'm actually more on Jose's side than the players at the moment. Why is I that? Think it, be, be, because the, the simple errors that Tottenham are making. 
Right, you, you know, uh, Jose puts in his plans all week and they go to the training ground and they say, we've got City this weekend and we're going to do this, this and this and they plan it and they talk about it and hours upon hours of analysis and 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3, this, that and the other. You get there on a Saturday afternoon and the players make stupid mistakes. Stupid, stupid mistakes week in, week out. What's Jose got to do with that? If Harry Winks can't control a football, <laughs> that's not exactly Mourinho's fault. Or if Lloris has got biscuit wrists... Right. I, I don't understand how anyone can blame Jose for that. I mean, if he had a wild team selection and you went, oh, mate, he's got it wrong from the start, then then blame Mourinho. But he's playing players in their positions. It's what they're paid to do. They're professionals. They all know what's happening because they've been told about it before the game. So to just completely just make childish schoolboy errors is, is on the players. You, you kind of got to hang your head. Mm. Well, I think, I mean, Mourinho's sort of doing this kind of uh, thing that he does where he makes kind of weird excuses. And he, and he was saying yeah. before and after the game that City had a rest in midweek while Spurs played for two hours against Everton. I mean, do you, do you think anyone falls for this rubbish anymore, Joel? Does he even believe it himself? It's straight out of his textbook, isn't it? Yeah. He's, he's done that every job he's had, everywhere he's been. He's, he's very good at sort of point you know t- like, like a politician turning making sure you're turning your eyes the other way and looking at the other you know mm. someone else's fault and you know the blind the blame lies uh, elsewhere um he's thrown and- that dead cat on the table so many times that there's barely anything <laughs> left of it is there yeah. <laughs> they, do, they have nine lines after all down but uh, <laughs> the thing the, 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 the thing is no I, I don't think anyone falls for it anymore and i think they started falling for a long long time ago as well and and i think it's, it's great where it's work where, where it does work and they are winning but when it when they're losing it just looks you know desperate and a bit shoddy, doesn't it? Mm, mm. Well, City took the lead from the penalty spot in this game. Rodri was the surprise taker. He just about squeezed it past Hugo Lloris, prompting more talk that Guardiola should let Edison take one. Do you think he should, Joel? Just for a laugh, I think. I mean, you know, they're, they're clear at the top of the table at the moment. They've got enough talent to kind of rescue themselves in games if they miss penalties. I mean, I suppose the argument against it is that you, if, if he did miss, then you're opening yourself up to uh, the other team breaking down the other end of the pitch and scoring. But so what? Come on. <laughs> I think right now, Dan, uh, the world's in lockdown. No one's allowed out to see the thing. The friends and family are yeah. only source of entertainment, you know, or one of the only source of entertainment is football. Everyone's on, you know, the, the, you know, the world's a bit shit right now. The one thing Pep Guardiola can do to make everyone a bit happy is let a goalkeeper take a penalty. I mean, I think it's actually quite abhorrent that he's not let Edison take one. <laughs> which he, really, he probably should do a bit of reflection in the mirror um, and have a look at this because, you know, they've won the league. The title's gone. It's fine. They've won it. You know, you know, give the world a bit of fun. Give them a little bit of joy and let Edison take a penalty. You know, you can put four players back on the halfway line so if the counter-attack happens, they can deal with it. Uh, Pep should get a grip, to be honest. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more with that, yeah. <laughs> uh, Davinson Sanchez uh, entertained us by face-planting the floor when uh, when Gundogan took it round in for the third goal. Um, it seems pretty bonkers that Eric Dyer still starting games at centre-back for Spurs. Do you think that's the, the weakest area of this team that they need, they need to strengthen pronto, Matt? Yeah, I think it is definitely the weakest point. Um, I'm not sure Eric Dyer is consistently to blame. I actually think he's been pretty consistent this season. Mm. Um, compared to some of the other ones, I mean, Toby Alderweireld has been brilliant, but it's clear that his, you know, he's he's not as quick or as athletic as he used to be, and it just seems to me that every year the strikers are getting bigger and quicker and better and <laughs> more complex to deal with. Um, and I just think that yeah, Sanchez has been very poor, very poor. I, I saw all of that stuff about 
Um, I saw obviously all of it on Twitter on him falling over and face on the floor. To be fair to him, he's just been wrong footed. Yeah. I mean, it's not like that's how he tried to defend was by lying on the floor. <laughs> let's let's give him a little bit of credit. Like the, he was looking at the ball sort of over his shoulder, and then Gundogan took it well and changed direction very quickly. It's not like he just decided to fall over. But um, yeah, he looked very stupid, and obviously for, for you lot, that was very entertaining. Um, it, it to me. It completely goes back to the pre-Van Dijk era of Liverpool. You identify a weakness, you go out, you pay the big money to get the big players in, and it makes a big difference. And that is exactly where Tottenham are. Mm-hmm. If they can identify their Van Dijk, identify the, the centre-back they should have bought, which should have been Ruben Diaz last yeah, summer. That's but, right. um, then, yeah, that, that's I, I find it hard to believe that Tottenham aren't doing it. That's genuinely what happens in a football team. Like you have a weak area, you identify who you need and then you buy them. Yeah. Whether it's Diaz, whether it's Van Dyke, whether it's Bruno Fernandes, whoever it is. I just don't know why that seemingly two-step logic uh, doesn't seem to apply at top. Speaking of defenders lying on the floor to defend, by the way, something that we've not uh, sort of discussed on this podcast yet this season is this new trend where teams have a draft excluder uh, behind the wall when defending a free kick. What's your take on that, Matt? Do you think that's that's a, a genius bit of uh, improvisation that's that's sort of become trendy? No. <laughs> I've literally seen that free kick happen once. Yeah. When was the last time someone hit a free kick under the wall? I remember Kevin De Bruyne doing it against Bournemouth about four years ago. Right, exactly. And I yeah. remember Ronaldinho doing it for Barca about twenty years ago. Yeah. So, <laughs> where it's not like it's not like you see it every single week. I think it's happened twice this season. Yeah, that's very. It seems highly unnecessary. And besides, when it doesn't happen, you just tell the wall not to jump. <laughs> I feel like it's that, that is something that we're paying far too much attention to that, and so are the players. But, Joel, is it not a belt and braces approach? You know, if, if the, wall, the, the wall can now jump and still have someone protecting the ball going underneath them, just in case someone does try that? I guess it does. Um, I guess it does. But the thing is, you know, you, you are taking a man away from somewhere else. So, you know... If, I mean, I think it'll stop at one point because there'll be a case where there'll be like two or three players unmarked of the opposition team for the rebound of a free kick and they'll put it in and score and then everyone go, wow, well, it's quite stupid having a guy yeah, eating grass at the time where he could have been marking somebody else. So um, yeah, I think it'll stop at some point. But yeah, I, I mean, Philippe Coutinho did it twice in one season against Brighton and um, West Ham a couple of years ago. So, you know, he's a master of it, you know what I mean? And you know what's going to happen now? So a team will concede a goal where the ball goes under the wall when they didn't have a man there doing it. And people will be like, why didn't they have a man there doing it? So, yeah. There you go. Uh, well, the, the guy who performs that role for City uh, is Alexander Tinchenko, who we've not talked about uh, very much uh, on the podcast in recent weeks, but he's, he's been outstanding. He was signed for something like 1.7 million from Russian side FC Ufa in 2015. He's supposed to be an attacking midfielder by trade and was never really meant to make it anywhere near the first team at City. Yet six years later, he's the starting left back for arguably the best uh, team in the world on current form. It's pretty impressive, that, isn't it, Joel? I think it is. Um, I, I, one thing I'll say about him is that when Liverpool played Man City the other week, I was looking at Sinchenko and thinking, there's the obvious weakness. There, there's the weak points. There's City's Eric Dyer. Um, let's get it. Let's get him. That, that's how we can get some joy. And, and, you know, obviously Salah gets a penalty now, but I don't, I don't think Salah had any joy off him all, all game. Mm. He, he's just solid. He's doing exactly what Guardiola needs him to do. And, you know, it, it, it he gets forward when he needs to, but I think what you know he's good at keeping his position, uh, which is great for attacking midfield to play on left back. That's re- remarkable, really. Yeah. And, and I think what it is, it's, it's testament to, to, to Guardiola because 
you know, obviously there, there were criticisms thrown out about him, how you know about City's resources and what he has available to him, which is a conversation for another day. But what it clearly we've seen with City this season is how good Guardiola is at, at coaching because we're looking at Zinchenko and Chao Cancelo and Gundogan, who were all brilliant footballers before this season, but they have, they have been sort of inconsistent and Cancelo didn't have a good first season in England. And, and now, especially the first two, we're in talk about them being player of the year and in the form that they're in. And it, it, what it is, is Guardiola's clearly working wonders on the training ground with them and, and he's making you know good players become almost world-class footballers. And Guardiola's, yeah, Gundogan's case, he was already a world-class footballer. But he's making these players better and and, and it's it's evidence in Cancelo, Gundogan, but it, mainly in Sinchenko for sure. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Well, here's some numbers courtesy of my friend Liam Wright on Twitter. If City win 10 of their last 15 games, the teams in second and third would need to win 13 of the last, their last 14. When you put it like that, it seems like the title's pretty much nailed on now, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. I, and it's not like um, it's not like we're talking about a team that, at the top that's inconsistent and they've got chasers. We're not talking about a team who's never been there before and they've got to hold their nerve. You know, you're talking about the team that, along with Liverpool, are the most suited, both mentally, with squad depth, with you know know-how to, to deal with this kind of situation. So yeah, it's uh, it's pretty much nailed on for C. Yeah, I still don't quite believe it, but uh, I'm, I'm getting closer <laughs> to believing it. So yeah. Come on. <laughs> well, Manchester United are still second in the league despite only managing a one-one draw with West Brom on Sunday. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer seemed to change his tune after the match and insisted they won't let City run away with the title, despite saying last week United shouldn't even be considered title chasers this season. It's not really their choice if they can't beat West Brom, though, is it, Joel? No, and, and we've made this point a couple of times on the podcast about you know how, you know how they come when they come against teams like this who, who do want to defend, they do have troubles, and and that's the one thing that's going to stop them and from developing from the team that they are right now, which which is a solid and you know respectable top four team to being a title challenger and. I think it just it just proves, you know, on Sunday. I think that's just cut and dry exactly their issue because Man City in that game, Man City find a way to win, and the Liverpool of last season find a way to win that game, mm. even if it's not pretty, even if it is just two one or or a one nil. Uh, you just manage to get over the line. You, you don't have to be well on your day. And, you know, I, you know, my United fan might be listening to this and, and saying, "Oh, what about you know Fulham a couple of weeks ago where we we don't play well and we come from behind and win two one and and and, and yeah, I guess that'd be a point. But the, the thing is, individuals step up and win the game for, for Man United and in Pogba and Fernandez mainly. Um, and when those individuals aren't on it, they do come unstuck and. And and that's that's an issue. That's an issue if you want to win the league because the team has to be on it. You know, but when you know Man City, you know they're you know De Bruyne, Sterling, Gundogan aren't scoring the goals or finding a way to score the goals or create a goal. Uh, you know, you'll have something like John Stones pop up and score, or you know, Cancelo will do something in the box. Liverpool would have Van Dijk popping up with a header, or Wijnaldum, you know, which would show up in the box somewhere. And Man United just need to find a way for you know everyone in the eleven to contribute, um, and that's that they're just not they they're just not there yet. Maybe they will get there, but they're not there yet. Mm. Well, Harry Maguire very nearly won it at the end when he uh, when he hit the post. He also thought he won a penalty in this match, only for the decision to be overturned by VAR. Uh, what confused me about this one was that he was offside anyway, wasn't he, Matt? 
Yeah, this is what I thought. I'm watching the replay thinking, you could just scrap this whole five-minute decision yeah. about it. It just says offside. <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether it fills their quota and they, they have an offside quota and a foul quota. I, I have no idea what was going on. I saw one of my friends try and explain it on Twitter yesterday where he was saying, like, apparently they only have to take the offside into account if they think it's a penalty. And that's why the referee went to the, the monitor and was looking at whether it's a penalty. And I, I had to have a lie down after that because it just... It just Confused me so much. But but then what if something came from it, like, uh, I don't know, another corner? Yeah. Would you then say, oh, we can't give the corner because it's offside, but there was no penalty to play on? Well, they, wouldn't, they probably don't... wouldn't even check that, would they? That's the thing. Yeah, it's, it's, that's yeah, how dumb I, it is, yeah. I, I, you lost me. <laughs> yeah. These are the things that just seem so dumb, that just seem so easy to kind of iron out and make simple. Yeah. I don't understand it at all. Uh, Maguire was pretty po- uh, vocal in, in a post-match interview with MUTV where he suggested Jurgen Klopp's recent comments about all the penalties United get have influenced the officials. He said, ever since uh, other people uh, from other teams spoke about us, we've had absolutely nothing from the referee or VAR. At the moment, we're playing without them, so we've got to make sure we're not leaving the game in the hands of the referee or the VAR. Is he onto something there, do you think, Joel, or is that just pure paranoia? Having a, you know, is really rich for a Man United player or someone representing from Man United talking about referees not being on their side <laughs> frankly ridiculous before you look at the penalties they got this season and, and, and don't think you know the referee gave the penalty in the first case um so no I, I think I think he's you know it's clever what he's done there actually because you know it's and it's, it's a, a tactic used by mainly you know, Premier League managers where you know they they, they claim where was me and, and they mm. say referees aren't giving anything and then that puts pressure on referees to give them something a be but more favourable in the coming week. So I put all your money on my United getting a penalty in the next penalty game. <laughs> well, I thought it was pretty telling that he he saved that conspiracy theory for MUTV and didn't mention that when he spoke to Sky or BT <laughs> or whoever. He obviously wanted to keep that one under wraps, didn't he? I mean, either way, Matt, he's right that they shouldn't be complaining about officiating and dropping points against one of the worst teams in the league, is he? Yeah, exactly. I think... I think you can sort of whine and complain all you like about one decision that took, you know, what was it, a minute of the game? But there's 89 other minutes in which you should be performing better than than West Brom. Mm. That's kind of the be-all and end-all. If there was an outrageous decision which, I don't know, clearly denied them um, a goal or, I don't know, if it was something that definitely changed the course of the match, then maybe, but they just weren't good enough for the rest of it. So I don't know Mm. how they can complain. I always think complaining about VAR... In, in, in most games, is kind of a, a last resort. You know what I mean? Because you tell me he's given that interview if like Fernandez has scored a hat trick and they won five 0 or something. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, no yeah. chance. <laughs> Uh, Sam Allardyce hasn't brought much to the table at West Brom so far, aside from his pint of wine, of course. Um, <laughs> but the, the January signing of Mbai Dianye is looking like a pretty shrewd acquisition, isn't it, Joel? He looked busy on Sunday. He mm. caused problems. And you know what? He probably should score more than one because he, he missed a few good chances and, and, and yeah, that's, that's been a bit critical of him um, to be honest but he, he caused Lindelof and, and Maguire problems um, a lot and I, you know I guess you know West Brom have got many issues but one one of the main ones we've had all season is just having you know focal points and, and someone to stick the ball in the net uh, you know up front and it, it looks like they, they've got someone who, who might be able to give him a bit of hope I mean I do think it's too far gone already but you know it, it, 
if he gets some you know, seven, eight goals now between now and the end of the season, they might be one of a shout. So um, I'd say it's a pretty good buy, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's the 12th different Senegalese player to score a Premier League goal under Allardyce. So if you ask me, there should be a, a statue of Big Sam in Dakar by now. He's, <laughs> he's, he's a national hero in that country. <laughs> wow. Yo, what a stat that is. <laughs> Do you think uh, Diagne was, was fouling Victor Lindelof on the goal, Matt, or, or does the defender have to be shot? No, absolutely not. And I'm delighted that it wasn't given as a foul. <laughs> I, I was watching that and I think, go on. Like, you, you've used your muscle and your strength and your size to get the defender out of the way and get your head on the end of the ball. I just, if you, this is one thing that really sort of winds me up, as you can probably tell, um, <laughs> is players picking and choosing when to use their strength. Yeah. Right, you know, you get a little touch on the arm and suddenly your legs go all jelly and you fall over and it's a penalty, <laughs> Right. But let's say Lindelof's got the ball in the corner with 10 seconds to go defending a lead. You're telling me that Nian goes, um, sorry, what's his name? Diani, sorry, goes around him and he falls over. Does he? Heck, he's got the strength of a ball protecting that ball in the corner, <laughs> yeah. right? Lindelof's in the opposition box going for the header. He's going to be as strong as he possibly can to outmuscle the defender. So why is it? It's like, oh, I just actually fancied winning a free kick and not being not being very strong today. Not having it, yeah. I think. Brilliant from the striker. Well, even and he the... also, I will say, sorry, he scored two goals against Tottenham that were both correctly offside. But the danger's been there. And I think that only being his only goal so far is maybe doesn't tell the truth of how good he's actually been. Mm, yeah, I thought his hold-up play and he was he was winning everything in the air was really good, yeah. Mm. And, and yeah, you're right about the... I mean, I, I think even Maguire went down a bit easily for that penalty, I think. Uh, oh, God. He, Again, he, I was delighted it wasn't given even if it was offside. He'd be fuming if a striker had done that to him, wouldn't he? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Chelsea are up to fourth after a 2-0 win over Newcastle on Monday night. I suppose the biggest story from this one is Timo Werner finally ending his 14-match scoring drought. Uh, were you impressed with him here, Joel? And do you expect the goals to flow again now? He's been great the last couple of weeks, actually, because in you know against you beat Sheffield United two one a couple of weeks ago, and, and um, he's part of both the goals. And now he wins the penalty and, and has another assist. And you know it's it's been funny to criticise him this season, I guess, from the internet. You know, you know it's been it's been the laughing joke to criticise Werner because the money he spent on him, and and I you know you know how you know how he's looked off it. But I think I think that's been quite harsh because I think. He's he's a quality footballer and he, he proved that last season. Scores twenty eight goals in the Bundesliga, um, and I, th- I think it, it was purely confidence more than anything else. And and maybe if you want to criticise Frank Lampard, maybe wasn't using him the right way. But you know we'll we'll see about that over time. But yeah, he, he, he was busy last night. He was effective. You know he linked up very well with Marcus Alonso on the left hand side, and he was dangerous throughout. And you know, he looked a matter of time before he was going to get that goal, and it was a scrappy goal mm. to get. You know, it literally only just goes over the line, but it's it's one of them that if, if he gets that, that you know, he'll feel ten times lighter now. And you know, he does a post match interview, and, and he you know he's he looks giddy, he looks confident, and I, I I do think something will start flowing with him now. I think something's clicked, and I won't be surprised if we're talking about Werner, you know, getting ten goals between now and May. To be honest with you. <laughs> I saw someone describe the goal on Twitter as a bicycle kick. I don't know what bicycle kicks they've been watching. <laughs> <Yeah. but. laughs> it looked like it's a penny farthing. Yeah, yeah. like he'd fallen off his bike, maybe. But uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, well, that was his first goal in exactly one thousand minutes of Premier League action, and ended a run of thirty-one attempts without scoring. So I'm sure he was very relieved. <laughs> uh, Chelsea have now picked up thirteen points from a possible fifteen under Thomas Tuchel, and they kept another clean sheet, even with Kepper in goal here. The man's a certified genius, isn't he, Matt? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when you put all that forward, yeah, it looks um, unbelievable. Um, I was always kind of uh, a little bit, 
not sceptical, but interested to see how long it would take Chelsea to get used to his methods because he's obviously a manager who has his ideas, has his, his methods and his ways, and he knows how he wants the team to perform. And sometimes it takes a little bit to kind of settle in. Um, and I didn't, in all honesty, I didn't expect wonders from him this season and I don't expect a crazy Champions League run from this um, than this season. But... Yeah, in terms of hitting the ground running, um, four four wins and a draw, getting some of the key players doing better things and kind of adapting rather quicker quicker than I first thought. He looks it looks like a man on a roll. It looks like nothing can stop them. Famous last words. <laughs> when the bubbles popped, get me back on, and I'll be like, I, I knew it. I knew it was He's useless fraud. <laughs> I will. I will. Will they finish in the top four for you, Joel? Do you reckon? I hope not because that probably means that Liverpool won't. Um, I, I think they've given themselves a really good chance now. They look, they, you know, it's, okay, it's still early days, um, and they do need to be a bit more clinical and create more chances. But what they're doing now is, is efficient, and it's it's a perfect start for just the beginning of a managerial reign where you sort out your defence and and you, you get you, know, you make your team solid first, and then you sort of. You add the sprinkle of quality over the next couple of weeks, maybe. Um, I think they're in a good chance. I, I think they're going to be in, in, in with a shout come May. Um, I'd very concerned about Liverpool. <laughs> All right, cards on the table then. Let's have your top four in order. I think we did this a few weeks ago and it's probably changed quite a lot since then. Yeah. So yeah. go on, Joel, you first. Um, I'm, I'm going to go City, Man United, Leicester, and I think Liverpool will just sneak in. For you, Matt? Um. I'm going to go City, United, Chelsea, Liverpool. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to go for as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poor Brendan. <sighs> yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I wasn't at all surprised to see Newcastle lose this game. They were much better in the second half than the first, to be fair. But do you think this was a game where Callum Wilson might have made a difference for them if he wasn't injured, Matt? Do you think he's a, a massive loss for them? Yeah, I mean... I seem to remember speaking about this a few weeks ago. It always is. As soon as you lose that goal threat, it's not... It, it, it's more than just the obvious fact that when a chance is in the box and it falls to Wilson, he's got more chances to score than the others. But I think mentally in the team, you can kind of see they're all very aware of it. You know what I mean? They're all very aware that without your top player, without your talisman, without your goal scorer, they may just be a little bit more hesitant. And I think there just could have been a few cases where they would have been maybe a bit braver knowing that they had someone to get on the end of any chances as, as opposed to thinking we might not score too many today. So mm-hmm. I think more than any other pl- uh, position on the pitch, when you don't have your goal scorer, it can affect the team massively mentally as well, kind of looking at, looking at each game. I think that's one of the biggest kind of drop-offs in standard between your first choice and your second choice striker when you've got Callum Wilson and then Dwight Gale yeah. backing him up. <laughs> that's what I mean. And I, you're telling me that the players don't think that as well. Yeah, they must. They'll do, be yeah. acutely aware. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Arsenal went back above Leeds in the table with a 4-2 win at the Emirates on Sunday. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang bagged a hat-trick here and he thanked the club and the fans uh, afterwards for supporting him while his mother was ill at the end of January. It hasn't been a great season for him on a personal level, but do you think he might kick on from here and, and start scoring more often, Joel? It's quite possibly. You know, it's it's not been a great season for him. Um, 
I, I think maybe that's down to maybe what Arteta was asking him to do more than anything else because it is you know he's he starting on the left hand side and he wasn't getting into the attacking positions as much as he should have been. Um, he's, he's played on the left before for the likes of Dortmund and and done the job and scored goals, but you know this time maybe his instructions were a bit different. But what what I would say should make Arsenal fans confident now and, and maybe should give him a bit of belief is that he he looked. At it on on Saturday, he looked uh, Sunday. Sorry, he, he looked at it. He looked confident. Like the first goal he takes is just prior Bamiang, where mm-hmm. he's he's sending yeah. the defender left and right, and he's he's, he's doing you know his tricks, and then the finish is 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 great. And then I think you know the one where he gets in the back post, and he, it's, it's the typical poacher's finish kind of thing. Yeah. That that just says to me that Bamiang's believes himself a bit more now, and he feels like he's back at it, and then. Um, that, you know that that should be promising for you know for Arsenal in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think you're right about the the sort of positional change because he he was very good at towards the end of last season and the start of this season at kind of cutting in off the left on shooting on his right foot. And I wonder if teams got a bit wise to that eventually and uh, and started sort of double marking him a bit there. And he started this game down the middle with with uh, I think it was Saka, Smith Rowe, and, and Odegaard behind him and, and looked a lot better. Uh, Saka won the penalty for the second goal. When you look through Arsenal's squad at the moment, Matt, do you think he's arguably their best player? Um, I would say yes on form. He's maybe not their best player in terms of they had everyone, you know, fully fit and firing. Mm. But he, and it's difficult as a Spurs fan, he is brilliant. <laughs> I will openly say I really enjoy watching him play. The one um, maybe criticism I have about him, I, I don't know if you guys would think the same. He seems to be a bit too nice sometimes. <laughs> I watch him, I watch him and he'll get fouled or he'll get pushed, or the game won't be going his way, and he'll sort of go, oh, damn, next time. <laughs> I kind of I kind of want him to be a bit more fired up. I want him to be a bit more arrogant and almost have a bit more self-belief, like, you know what, I am the absolute business here, and That's I'm going to make it happen. For, for the, you know, the first penalty, which gets um, overturned, he, yeah. he, he, they cut to his face straight afterwards, and he looks guilty as sin. He, you know, he looks like the, you know, the, the, the dogs are just pissed in the, uh, in, the, in the living room. And he's got, <laughs> Let's come, come on, mate. You've given it away there. Like, we know it's not a penalty now. <laughs> like, I just, you know what I mean? I feel like and you watch a lot of the, the English players who I just think Foden, Grealish, they have so much confidence in themselves that it borders on arrogance, but you need it. It's kind of that bully spirit. And I feel like Saka really needs to believe that he can go on and be one of the best wingers in the Premier League. And I'm sure he does inside. Sometimes on the pitch, it looks like he doesn't quite believe it himself just yet. And he needs that kind of that hot streak to yeah really kind of show that he's the business. Yeah, well, he's still only 19, isn't he? Which is pretty yeah. frightening. And um, I, I don't know what his best position is, and that's a good thing, I think. Like, I think he can be whatever he wants. He could be yeah. a he could be a, a left back. He could be a right winger. He could be a attacking midfielder, a striker. I think he's got the world at his feet, mm. that boy. I'm very looking forward to see what what he's got to uh, offer in the next few years. Uh, Martin Odegaard made his first start for Arsenal in this game. What have you made of his Arsenal career so far, Joel? It's still early days, isn't it? It's, you know, you say his first start there. He's, he's made a couple of sub appearances, um, you know, against the likes of Villa and Man United. He's, you know, it's, it's it's just getting him getting him used to the way Arsenal wants to play and him getting used to his teammates. And I think it's maybe too early to comment on on him and, and you know say whether he's going to be a success or not. But he's definitely got the talent to do so. And, and I think going forward, Arteta might turn to that front four again um, quite regularly between now and the end of the season. 
in a way he's maybe alternating with Smith Rowe, you know, to the left and the centre. And like you said, there Saka could probably play anywhere across that three as well. Mm. And that that could be something that could be quite exciting. You know, if you play those three behind Abamyang or, or Lacazette, um, you know, that that's something that you know, is quite in, intricate and quite fluid, and it could be quite exciting to see. And I think we talk about Odegaard having some kind of effect on the team. You know. Maybe sort of late March, sort of April kind of thing. Yeah, I uh, I don't want to reignite the debate about whether Marcelo Bielsa's football is pragmatic <laughs> enough because that's been done to death, hasn't it? But but do you think it's fair to say they really must miss Calvin Phillips when he's not there, Matt? Uh, yeah, of course, he was a really kind of uh, a key part to the promotion campaign and to to their season as well. I just think he's one of those that he's got quite a unique set of skills. Um, and the more unique a player is, the better it works out for your side when he's in the team, but the more you miss him when he's gone. So, yeah, I mean, to, to find, to have a second Calvin Phillips ready and waiting would be would be kind of difficult. So, yeah, mm. they're, they're going to miss him when he's out. A unique set of skills, isn't that what Liam Neeson says in Taken? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. And, you, you know, no one's been able to do that role since. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what about Elan Melier, uh, Joel? I mean, it feels a bit a bit harsh to pounce on him every time he makes a mistake, but I'm just not convinced by him at all. You know, he gave the penalty away pretty poorly in this game. I thought for the the first and third goals, he was pretty pretty sloppy as well. I yeah, I, I think I feel I'm the only one outside of Leeds supporters who who defend him, and I think there is something in there, and I get pelters from it in, in you know in work and obviously in, in group chats and things like this mm-hmm. with, amongst mates because I seem to be the only one who, who think, think there is something there with him. I think he's a good shot stopper, but then I, you know, can't sort of defend him for, you know, the penalty because it's just, he, he's just fallen asleep, hasn't he? And, mm-hmm. and Saka's got in and been a bit quicker to him, but he does seem to have a bit of a wreck in him and a bit of error in him, but I think I think the, the potential, especially with sort of, he can, he can command his area quite well and he, and he can make good saves, but he's still young. Give him time. He's fine. Yeah. That seemed to be like the second or third time, though. I was watching the game and thinking, you know, he's taking a few risks here. The strikers are getting close. He was kicking it out of bounds a few times. I think one of these times he's going to get caught. Yeah. Literally happened straight away. Yeah. <laughs> but, but maybe he's been told it, to do that by Bielsa. It could be a plan. Know. It could be a plan to drag the opposition out, and then they leave space in behind, and or yeah, space exactly. and exploit. So it could be a plan. But, um, he obviously has to get better at doing it, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I think Leeds' problem is that Kiko Kassia, their number two, is so bad that uh, they kind of have to play Melier. He doesn't really have anyone to kind of keep him on his toes. And I wonder yeah. if they, they sign someone uh, to compete with him next next uh, season. That might bring the best out of him. Um, the shock of the weekend took place at Goodison Park on Sunday night when Everton were beaten 2-0 by Fulham. Everton were really, really bad here, even worse than they were against Newcastle the other week. Uh, how much of that was, was down to them being without Dominic Calvert-Lewin, do you think, Matt? Um, yeah, it was probably, it was probably something to do with being that Calvert-Lewin, but I also think it's something that is within the squad, within Everton to just have, I wouldn't say it's the ability because it's a negative thing, the ability to just pull out an absolute disaster class. Like we're talking about if any team can be consistent, they can make it to top four. Everton, sometimes I think, God, they must be nailed on top four. And then Mm. other times Mm. I think that's classic Everton. Like you just... (laughs) They just seem to have this shocking performance in them because, you know, this is a few days after, you know, knocking five past Spurs and having some really good performances in the in the last few weeks. And then to do that at home to Fulham, regardless of Calvert-Lewin missing, they've still got more than enough quality. Um, it, it really just sort of summed Everton up for me. When I watch Everton, I always think they're like baby Spurs. <laughs> 
They just do everything that Tottenham do, but just on Merseyside instead. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about Everton as potential title challenges. I think exactly. that was that was always a bit premature. But I mean, they're clearly a work in progress. But if they end up missing out on the top four or the top six, do you think that has to be looked at as a big missed opportunity this year, Joel? Especially when you look at what West Ham are doing. I, f- I think with the way the season's gone and, and he's playing girls with you know with the inconsistencies and you know you know there, there are space up for grabs, there are positions up for grabs. I think they should look at it as a missed opportunity because they started the season so well and mm. they've they've had this the, the issues that Matt just pointed to there. They've they've had them all season um, and you know even a couple of weeks ago they lose two 0 to Newcastle at home as well and pretty much a carbon copy of the same game against Fulham. I you just thinking you've had these issues all season and you've not tried something to you know or figured out how to get beyond it and, and maybe it's the players on the pitch more than the coach because you know obviously they've got one of the best coaching division there and um, he's won champions leagues and, and maybe the players just aren't very good at figuring things out on the pitch just yet and um, so i think it will be a missed opportunity because they've got good players and, and a good team and and a really good coach and and they need to figure this thing out quickly because there, there is still a europa league place and maybe even champions league space um there for him to take. Yeah, well, they've got uh, Man City and Liverpool in their next two games. Ancelotti's just confirmed that Calvert-Lewin's probably going to miss both of those games as well, so uh, not looking great for them at the moment. Oh, they'll beat us, it's fine. <laughs> they yeah. they, no, they won't. You know they won't. Come on. No chance. It's the most one-sided derby I've seen in yeah. recent years. What was it, oh. ni- 1999, their last win at Liverpool? Yeah, Wait, it Liverpool? Yep. Yeah, give it, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we can't go back to the UK at the moment because I don't what? want to face over to fans ever again. <laughs> Isn't it a decade without a win altogether? I think it is, yeah. Yeah. Oh, is. Jesus. Yeah. How are you worried? 2010-2-0. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my word. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Sunderland Till I Die fans like myself would have been pleased to see Josh Marger <laughs> score both goals here. Yes. We se- yeah, we said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago that Fulham were crying out for someone who could score goals. Do you think they found their man in Marger, Matt? I don't know. I've just hyped to see him back. Yeah. I just, <laughs> it feels like you're really invested in a reality series and your favourite character comes back in. <laughs> um, I'm not sure whether he's the man to to provide them with that many goals to help them stay up. Um, but I certainly think from a learning experience for him, it's, it's going to be massive. He's clear at Sunderland. You know, he was taking the mick out of League One in that first six months of the season before he moved to Bordeaux. And I think it's rather interesting just to see that, you know, an English player can decide to move abroad, doesn't have to stick it out in League One Championship. You know, it can move, move abroad, doesn't get as much game time as Bordeaux as you probably would have liked, but still obviously developed enough to the point where he is suitable now for the Premier League. And I, I think, you know, it's kind of, it's almost nice for him because if he stays in the Sunderland side that doesn't get promoted, you still think he's League One level because mm. he's there. So it's kind of nice for him to make it back and into the Premier League. Um, but yeah, I just I, I'm not sure unless he goes in a ridiculous form that he's got enough like to single handedly drag Fulham out of it. Probably not, no. But I thought uh, Harrison Reed was immense here. I don't know if it was his ginger hair making him stand out like a beacon, but he seemed to be everywhere on the pitch doing everything. Um, I mean, you were saying a couple of weeks ago, Matt, that you don't think Fulham have enough Premier League quality players. Would you say he's one of them or he's shown himself to be one of them at the moment? He's shown himself to be better than the rest. But I think, again, when you're looking at um, kind of just one decent player having good games in midfield, it's not enough for a relegation scrap. Much like the same thing with Madger, having one or two that are capable at Premier League level and the rest not doesn't really help you. Um, 
Especially considering, you know, this is his first full Premier League season. I mean, he had a few appearances at Southampton about four years ago. Yeah. Spent a few years in the Championship. He's had this shot and I think he's given it a good go. Again, it's one of those I just don't think he can influence enough games. He's influenced the game against Everton, a very good performance. But just to influence enough, you know, during the season might be a big ask just for him. Yeah. I, the thing I don't like about him is that he's got two surnames instead of one first name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he looks and sounds like a football manager regen. But apart from that, yeah, I, I think he's great. Yeah. <laughs> wow, amazing. <laughs> um, Fulham are seven points behind Newcastle with a game in hand, Joel. Have they got a chance of staying up, do you think? They give themselves a chance now. Uh, they play uh, twice before Newcastle next play, and, and Newcastle played Man United. Mm. And then Fulham, I think, are playing Sheffield United and Burnley. Um, so it'd be very interesting to win those two games and then they go one point behind Newcastle. Um, I've, they got to say they've got a chance for sure. Um, they 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 pulled themselves back into it, and, and Scott Parker deserves credit because you know, for the start of the season, they come up and they want to play a possession style of football, and and you know be very pretty, and, and they look great. But they were leaking goals at the back, and they looked vulnerable mm. all the time. They they definitely shored themselves up, and they found a way of making themselves solid and really hard to beat. And I still create chances, and, and and they weren't scoring goals. Um, and maybe like Matt alludes to there, Magic can, maybe can be the guy to put them in. Possibly we'll have to see about that. Um, but they've they've given themselves a fighting chance now, and I, I think if I, I had I had passion for Sheffield United getting out of it, I think that might have gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, any hope after losing last night for sure. But if if anyone's going to get out of it now, I do think it'll be Fulham. But you know, we'll see. Yeah, well, speaking of which, West Ham are above Liverpool in fifth place after a 3-0 win over Sheffield United on Monday night. After the game, David Moyes said, we've got five games before April and if we make it to there, it might start hotting up. But it nearly feels uneasy talking like this. The teams around us are top, top teams and we are going to have to play incredibly well to be there. I mean, in a way, I, I, I admire his honesty there, but do you think that's the kind of energy he should be transmitting to his players at this point, Matt? Shouldn't he be sort of bigging them up a little bit more? Yeah, that's what I thought as well. <laughs> He's kind of saying like, I'm well aware we don't belong here. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> I thought it would be a kind of a odd message. But then again, ah, there's always this thing that you say one thing to the media and say another to the dressing room. Mm. Like, I mean, he's not exactly running in there going, boys, this is it. The title's on. <laughs> like, he's not hyping them up. But I think he'd be managing expectations. Yeah. Um, but but on, on the flip side of this, I think, like we kind of discussed, um, seems a theme of this podcast, that, any sort of run can get you in the conversation. Mm. And I just think that if other teams are going to be inconsistent, it does not matter who you are, whether you're Everton, West Ham, Liverpool, Southampton make a late run, Leeds. If you put a consistent run together in this most of inconsistent seasons, you could be up there. So fair play to them for doing it. I guess you kind of just sort of take it game by game. And like you said, take up to April and, at the end of the season, you see where you finish because there's there's just no telling right now. Yeah. Well, if they do finish in the top six, Joel, are we are we crowning Moisey the manager of the season? Ooh, that's a conversation, isn't it? Mm. I mean, that, that's not really the the dystopia I want to live in. Um, <laughs> but I, I, it's, it's a fair shout, and, and probably deserves to because. He's been brilliant for them. Um, he's come back and he's, you know, West Ham have been a club for years that lack identity and just been in absolute chaos and made wrong decisions left, right, and centre with recruitment and and managers and tactics. And he's come in, made them solid, made them exciting to watch on the break. And in some games, they are really good to watch. And last night was one of them. I thought Jesse Lingard was phenomenal last night, which was 
I mean, I don't know what year we are living in now, but that's, it's just <laughs> David Moyes is really good. Jesse Lingard is really good. And, and yeah, you know, the, the manager of the season, I always think should go to the lad who wins the title. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think maybe even Pep won't have any issue if uh, Moyes gets the manager of the season this year. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that, actually, because sort of the, ti- the, the, the league title is enough of a kind of accolade as it is, that, and the that manager of the season yeah. should really go to someone who's, who's performed above expectations. You know, a lot Tony Pugh has gone a couple of years ago and Palace finished 11th, and it's just it's made a mockery of it for me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm still not over Scott Parker winning the player of the year when Sergio Aguero <laughs> scored the winning goal in the, the uh, 2012 title race, but, you know, never mind. Did he really? He did, yeah. Scott oh Parker. Oh, my God. <laughs> he got eradicated as well, didn't he, West Ham that year? Uh, no, he was at Spurs that year, wasn't he? Or, yeah, he was at Spurs, thinking, yeah. I might, I might be thinking of a different year. I might be getting my bitterness confused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take it uh, over. Yeah. Uh, well, West Ham's highest ever Premier League finish was fifth in 98-99, under Harry Redknapp with 57 points. They've got 42 points now with 42 still to play for. They should beat their personal best then, shouldn't they, Matt? Uh, yeah, you'd think so. Mm. It looks odds-on to do it. I really like... Um, I just really like how the Moyes has kind of identified a few problem areas and, and sort of addressed them. I think getting rid of record-signing Allaire is a massive move. Mm. Um, but just saying, you know what? It didn't fit the system. And and just sort of making big calls like that, bringing Ben Rama on a permanent and Lingard, I think they've got enough to do it. I th- I really think they do, and yeah, fair credit to them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you remember earlier in the season when we were sort of laughing about when Moyes uh, was working from home when he had COVID, and we were saying, <laughs> yeah, what a, what a sort of relic of a bygone era he was. And look at him now. Look at him now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last week, Chris Wilder was saying Sheffield United were fighting for survival. This performance. Felt like they didn't have much fight left in them, though, didn't it, Joel? Yeah, they they were blunted very early on, and and just never really got going. And it's 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 kind of a shame because they have been showing in recent weeks a bit of a bit of a scrap, and, and they've been in games. And I think that's maybe the case of all the season. They they've not really been battered once. But you know, last night they are they are completely dispatched. It was a routine win for West Ham, and they just they just never got going once. And I, I think. It, it, it is a little bit of an, you know a bit of a shame because I, I think they were they were maybe going to be a bit of an exciting storyline and you know and and give us all something to, to enjoy because I, I think they would have if they maybe picked up a few more wins or pick up a few more wins in a few weeks they could they can you know, give themselves a bit of a fighting chance to get out of it but last night that, that looked like a team that that was down that was mm. that first time I think I've seen it for a few months where they, they looked down to be honest yeah that glimmer of hope they got after beating uh, Man United the other week has, has faded pretty yeah, badly now reasons, hasn't it yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, Southampton made it six Premier League defeats on the spin when they lost at home to Wolves on Saturday Danny Ings opened the scoring with a great goal he's now scored 30 goals since the start of last season only Salah, Vardy and Kane have scored more in that time um, do you think he might be looking for a move away from Southampton in the summer Matt or is he better off staying put at a place where he's playing regularly and scoring goals and all that yeah, that, that's kind of what he's going to be trading in for, isn't it? Because mm. if he goes to any other bigger team, he's going to be mainly on the bench. I can't see. I think that Southampton, with the right tweaks in their team, can be a team that pushes the top six, right, and that challenges for Europa League. If Danny Ings is going to move to a top six club and sort of um, bypass the rebuild at Southampton, he's going to sit on the bench. That He's behind... Firmino and Salah and them lot, Kane and Son and Aguero and Sterling and Rashford and you know he just unfortunately he's not going to start and it's not it's not an insult to his career 
he's just not starting ahead of those players yeah. at the moment. And especially to bring him in for an insane amount of money, which is what Southampton will want, um, to then sit on the bench is just not going to happen. So he's better off staying. But the, the one bit of hope I would give him, and I actually enjoy it, is the fact that Gareth Southgate doesn't necessarily look to the top teams for his players for England. And, it, you know, do you remember back in the day, it was like England was Man United. Yeah. It was, and you had to be at the Champions League and you had to this, that and the other. Um, but the likes of Grealish um, and Mings and Tarkovsky as well, the fact that you don't have to play for one of the top sides to get in the England squad is actually going to work in England's favour. So if he's banging the goals to Southampton, um, there's no reason why, you know, for example, he couldn't fight for a spot at the Euro squad or get the recognition that he deserves just because he's not being a bit part player at one of the bigger clubs. Yeah. If I was him, I would just probably stay there for the rest of my career now. I just don't see this really yeah. any, any point in moving when you, when you, you, you're doing so well at one club. Yeah. Uh, Ralph Hasenhutl was annoyed by the de- decision to uh, award Wolves a penalty for Ryan Bertrand handball in this game. It was referee uh, Martin Atkinson who made the, t- the decision, but Hasenhutl said, I haven't spoken with the VAR because he isn't at the stadium, so we can't. This is the issue. The games aren't decided in the stadium anymore. The games are decided at Stotley Park. This is no good for the game. I don't think, um, I mean, I don't really get his point in this particular instance, to be honest. Do you, Joel? It is a bit of a strange one. I, you know, got this image of you know Hassan Hootle driving up to Stockley Park and then um, waiting outside for the VAR to come out. And for some reason, he's flipping a coin and he's got like a stick in his mouth and he, he's, <laughs> he's looking very intimidating and threatening. Um, he, he seemed like he'd, he'd lost himself a bit on you know in that post match. But uh, the, the point he's making, I'm, I'm not too sure because. In a way, he's saying the games are being inside in Stockley Park, you know, and not in the stadium. That I, I guess that is he maybe he's got a point there. He is right because you know, maybe the decision should be trusted with the referee and in the stadium, and you know, someone else with a laptop elsewhere or a video elsewhere is affecting things two hundred miles away. And I, I guess in a way that can be annoying if you are involved in the in, in the game uh, and it's your team getting hurt. But and maybe that's what it is more than that. He's a bit bitter about. The decision going against him, but mm. it's, it's a whole conversation about VAR, which I know we don't want to get into again, um, about whether it's right or, or wrong. But in, in this particular instance, I, I don't think this is the, the main issue with it that it's in a very, very infamous Stockley Park, which I think is going to become the storyline of the season, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. It, it was the referee who made the decision in this case. You know, whether you agree with that or not is, yeah. is I. I personally thought it was a really soft penalty um, but the guys next door uh, Ralph if you want to have a word with him never mind the fellas at Stockley Park in this on this case like go and speak to Martin Atkinson if you don't like it um, but the game was won by a, a delicious goal from Pedro Neto over Wolves he's still only 20 and looks like he has a very bright future ahead of him but I don't think it's going to be with Wolves is it Matt? I am crying for him to join Tottenham He's he's got Tottenham would, written all over him I think he yeah. really does you know he, for me on the right hand side is the Opposite winger of Son. So Son and Neto behind Kane. Oh, I haven't dreamed about that. Um, yeah, I don't think it's with Wolves, uh, to be honest. I really question kind of what's going on with um, the manager, with Nuno as well, because they've been kind of sold this promise that Wolves are on the up and up and up. And if they start heading down, that's not really what a lot of the players have been bought in for. You know, the, the, yeah. it, it appeared to me that the likes of Jimenez and um, Neto and there's Podence as well, they've kind of all seen Wolves as 
their journey up towards European football in the Champions League. And they saw it last season. But if it's going to all come to pieces this year, I'm not sure too many of them will hang around. And especially for a younger player like Neto, you kind of got to strike while the iron's hot and force your move through when you can. Yeah. Because um, he doesn't want his reputation going down with Wolves and suddenly he and Wolves are both, you know, relegation survivors or lower mid-table Premier League players or teams. Yeah, I think that there's going to be a bit of a turning point with Wolves coming very soon. We talked about this on yeah. the podcast last week that they're sort of, they've kind of reached the end of this this cycle. But uh, yeah, I'd be interested to see what mm. happens there. Uh, Crystal Palace lost their second game on the spin when they were beaten comfortably by uh, 3-0 by Burnley at home on, on Saturday. Um, I'm really starting to fear for the Roy Hodgson algorithm, Joel. Because <laughs> Palace were really bad here, weren't they? The terrible, aren't they? You know, they should be looking over the shoulder a little bit, actually. Yeah. Um, and I was talking about sort of the relegation place being decided, but, you know, if... Newcastle and Crystal Palace, I think they've got, you know, some little shoulder work to be doing because they just they just seem to have lost themselves a bit, Palace. They, you know, they nearly make the joke about the Royal Hodgson algorithm, but the, the thing is, it's a fact because they, they can get results, you know, every three or four weeks. They can get a draw, then a win, and they're going to lose a couple of games. But they are they are there, they, they even it out. But right now, they just seem to be in, in free fall, and the performances are bad. They're not, they're not in games, and, and they've got, got, got quality players as well. Mm. They've got players that do damage, and when you do have attacking players and, and talent in their team like they do, you should always have a chance in the game, even if you are back to the wall for the majority of it. You should always have a, you know, a bit of a break, uh, a bit of a counter-attack to you know, inflict a bit of damage, but they don't look capable of doing that at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, we talked about the loss of Wilfred Zahar in the last couple of podcasts, but they started this game with Benteke, Batshuayi, Ayu and Eze. Why are they still so toothless, Matt? I, I honestly don't know. I think it might be a Crystal Palace curse. <laughs> Every striker they bring in just cannot do the business. It really has gone on for far too long. I don't quite understand what's going on. I'm, I think Eze has been a brilliant addition this season. Mm. Mm. Um, but yeah, just a, just a striker. I'm trying to think of the last one they had. Probably Andy Johnson about 16 years ago <laughs> when he had that really good season. There was a top goal scorer or something yeah. when, he, when he had his one England cap. I just, for the life of me, cannot figure out, no matter what they try... How they don't have a strike. You know, Sorloth went to Turkey, scored a hat full of goals and got his move to uh, Leipzig mm. in the Champions League. Yeah, he walks on the, the hallowed Selhurst Park turf <laughs> and can't hit the goal for love nor money. I just, <laughs> I, I don't understand. I'm, I'm at a complete loss as to why no striker can score for Palace. Yeah, I mean, Benteke's been a lost cause for a while. Batshuayi is one who's really disappointed me. I thought that would yeah. be a, a really good signing for them, but he's not. Yeah. You sort of forget he plays for them, don't you, in fact? Yeah, yeah. I just don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> So if Palace are a one-man team, would you say Burnley are the opposite of that, Joel? Given that they don't really have any standout players, but yeah, they're, they're sort of, as a unit, they're getting results yeah. at the moment, yeah? It's all about the system. It always has been with Dice because I think, you know, Burnley, I think you look at the majority of their team that they are championship level players but the thing is they all come together and work like you said as, as a unit and as, as a team and, and then every definitely do is about teamwork and ethic and um, and you know make, making sure they make things difficult for the other team and, and then but then they're going to score three goals away from home which I don't think they've done many times since they've come back up mm. uh, usually their games are quite solid and, and decided by the odd goal but um no, yeah, definitely do. It's all about the unit and, and the system, and, and it works because they've been punching above their weight for years, and it looks like they're going to do it again and stay yeah. in the Premier League again. Indeed, I feel like uh, Matthew Lowton's brilliant goal got somewhat overlooked this weekend. Um, I doubt it will win goal of the season, but a potential goal of the month contender for you, Matt. One hundred percent. That <laughs> is what a goal. Yeah. it's just 
it's a bit of a shame. That's one of those where the name comes before the achievement. Yeah. If 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 Bruno or you know, Jordan Henderson or Son or someone does that, we rave about it for years. But if it's a a lowly right back from Burnley, no offense to Lowton. Um yeah, it's probably not going to get as much recognition as it's not deserves. the first time he's done that either. Do you remember that one he scored for Villa a few years ago? That yeah. was against Stoke. Stoke. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was a banger. That was his last goal. Was it? In the Premier League <laughs> two, wow. April two, April 2013. So almost eight years on from his last strike, and he only does bangers. Will do some vibes only, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what? If I only scored two goals in, in eight years, I'd be fine if they were like that, to be honest. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Fine that, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll finish with the most disappointing game of the weekend, which took place at the Amex on Saturday night, when Brighton and Aston Villa could only manage a goal a straw. Uh, Villa keeper Emmy Martinez did have to make nine saves in this game now. Does that, uh, does that pretty much sum up where Brighton are at, Joel? A good team, but not quite clinical enough? Yeah, absolutely. We've said it a few times on the podcast about you know the need for a, a guy you can put the ball on the back of the net, and you know they just haven't got someone who's consistent enough to do that because they pretty much got everything else nailed on because they're solid at the back, they keep plenty of clean sheets, they're very good in the transition, very good at creating chances, they're just not very good at sticking them. Um, but you know, I, but maybe that has been a bit harsh in this game because you know Mars has been in inspired form and he was great and he's been one of the signs of the season if not the sign and, and I am um, it's it's you know I think it was more down to him that the fact that Brighton didn't win this game more than anything else yeah well Martinez has kept seven clean sheets in, uh, in in away games this season Dean Smith was saying afterwards that Villa were bang average in this game do you think that shows you how far they've come this season Matt that they're no longer content with just getting a draw away at an in- informed side like Brighton yeah, absolutely. If I was Dean Smith and I'd presided over some of the fantastic attacking victories they've seen this season, especially, you know, both games against Arsenal, the Liverpool game, and you've seen firsthand what your squad are capable of, you would be pretty disappointed. I mean, yeah. that's got that's got the, um, you know, all the signs of a really good team when you've got an insane goalkeeper keeping it out at one end. And you've got the other players doing the bits at the other end and scoring loads of goals. I mean, that's the hallmark of a great team. So the fact that they've scored so many this season yet just haven't done it when the keeper's done the best to keep it at nil-nil would, would yeah, I, I imagine he's very disappointed with that. Mm. I want to talk quickly about Dan Byrne, who uh, has excelled at left back recently, despite the fact he's six foot five. It shouldn't work, but it does, doesn't it, Joel? No, it shouldn't work at all. It's maybe disgraceful that it is working because <laughs> it, it's it's thrown everything that we believe about football out, out of loop <laughs> and out of sync. And I, I don't understand why it's working. He had a terrible time against Adama Traore when when Wolves came there you know, over Christmas, and that looked like finally, you know what? You know, it's, it's, he might chip that out. He might he might get swerved that now, and, and he won't do that again. But you know, he just keeps on performing at left back and. And, and it's chaos. It really yeah. is. Well, I'm about the same height as Dan Byrne. I've got pretty much the same name as Dan Byrne. And I was always told that I was too tall to play anywhere except in goal or centre-back. So I feel like I'm sort of I'm sort of vicariously living through him at the moment. He's like living my dream for me. And I'm, it's, it's really great to see. Yeah. This is your moment. Somewhere yeah. in an al- alternate universe, he's got a cracking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this, the Dan Byrne podcast. And it's brilliant. And he's talking about how much he really appreciates what you're doing in the Premier League. <laughs> 
I love that. I love that. Well, uh, on that note, we'll uh, we'll end this week's episode of the Premier League Weekend Review podcast. I've been Dan Burke, not Dan Byrne. Uh, thank you to to Matt Froelich and Joel Sanderson Boy for joining me, and thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, we've got two more One Football podcasts coming your way later this week. Angelina Kelly will be back with another episode of the Women's Football Show before Ian McCourt reviews the Champions League stuff later in the week, and we'll be back next week to discuss such Premier League matters as the Merseyside Derby, Arsenal v Man City, and much much more. Take care, and we'll see you then.